you'll see it on social media and you just kind of your heart will be a flutter thinking uh, union and communion uh, but uh, the reason we've named it that you know maybe you could have come up with a more uh, catchy title uh, but union and communion because we're going to be looking at baptism uh, which is a, a sign of our union with Christ and his people uh, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper, uh, which is the way in which we enjoy our communion with Christ and his people. Uh, and today we're looking at church membership, which is the context in which we uh, experience both baptism and the Lord's Supper. So kind of union and communion, that's where the title comes from, uh, comes from and hopefully that will become even clearer as we wor- uh, work through this series. And some of you might be thinking, well, why, why do this series? Why do this three-week series, Church Membership, Baptism and the Lord's Supper? Uh, Well, in the end, you might be surprised to know uh, that it's actually about coconuts and peaches. It's all about coconuts and peaches. These guys are going to put up a picture of a coconut. Uh, It's about coconuts because some churches are a little bit like coconuts. By that I mean they're very, very hard on the outside and soft in the middle. Hard on the outside in that they're almost impossible to break into. You know, you've tried to open a coconut before, it's very hard. Picture Tom Hanks on that island in Castaway. You know, it's really quite hard to get into a coconut. And some churches are a little bit like that, right? Like there's all sorts of barriers, obstacles to to getting connected, to getting involved. Uh, But once you do kind of break in, you discover that it's actually quite a warm and and, and friendly environment, a wonderful church community to be a part of. Some churches are like uh, coconuts, hard on the outside, uh, soft in the middle. Uh, Over the lifetime of our church, we've tried to be a bit more like a peach. Soft on the outside, but hard in the middle. Soft on the outside in that we've done whatever we can to try to be as accessible as possible. To welcome as many uh, people as possible, to remove obstacles to that happening. Uh, But still having a hard centre. Those are some non-negotiable truths that we gather around. And most of those truths are what the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4, what he would call matters of first importance. These are core truths of the gospel, really truths that if you want to call yourself a Christian, you have to believe these things. Christ lived, he died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead. These are matters of first importance. Uh, And primarily, this is the hard centre that our church uh, has been and will continue to be gathered around. Uh, And I don't think if you've been a part of our church for any length of time, I I don't think that will be much of a surprise to you. Uh, But maybe what is a little bit more surprising or or, uh, that you might not be aware of is that there are some, I guess, what you might call matters of secondary importance that are also essentially in the category of fairly non-negotiable truths for us as a Presbyterian church. Uh, Matters like church membership, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. These are things, of course, that faithful Christians can and do disagree on. They're things that people in our church, uh, loved brothers and sisters in Christ, regular attendees and members of our church disagree on. Right, and so as myself and, uh, and the elders thought this through, uh, uh, as we keep growing in number as a church, we want us to, to keep maintaining the unity of the Spirit. You know, we want us to keep being able to grow together in unity as a church. And for us to do that, we felt it was important for us to give some clear biblical teaching on what our positions are with regard to some of these secondary matters so that you're as clear as possible on where we're coming from you can be, uh, we can be clear on where you're coming from uh, and so that hopefully we can keep growing together in unity as a church even if we don't persuade you. 
Right, so that's why we're doing this series. Uh, we don't presume that we're going to persuade all of you on these three matters so that you all see things. In, uh, we all see things in exactly the same way. And we're absolutely not saying that you can't disagree with us on one of these things uh, and be a part of our church. You, you can disagree with us on these things. Right, well, we're still a peach church gathered primarily around matters of first importance. Uh, but these are things that our church has particular positions on. Just like the local Baptist church has a position on baptism and the Salvation Army church has a position on the Lord's Supper. Right? The churches have distinctive beliefs on secondary matters and we're no different. So it's really good for us to be clear on what our position is uh, so that we can avoid as much as possible any confusion or surprises so we can keep growing in unity as a church. Uh, so let me pray for us. We're going to launch this like a little intro. We're going to launch into the first of these uh, church membership. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, uh, we do thank you for the growth that our church has experienced over the past uh, just a bit over six years. Uh, we thank you that uh, we've uh, seen a, a relatively diverse range of people, not as diverse as we might like perhaps, but we've seen a diverse group of people gather around those core truths of the gospel, uh, the truths of who Christ is and what he has done for us, the faithful teaching of his word. We thank you for that. And we pray, Father, through this series uh, that you would uh, help us to uh, increase understanding uh, with regard to some of these secondary matters, church membership, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and particularly this day, I pray, Father, that you would uh, convince us all of the importance of being committed to a particular local church, uh, that we might persevere together until we reach our home with you. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, so over the past six years of our church, uh, it's not been uncommon for me to be t uh, talking with someone who's been around our church for a little while uh, and to say to them, uh, you know, you've been around for a little while, uh, maybe you should consider becoming a member of our church. So I'll, I'll say that to them. Uh, and they would often say, what do you mean become a member of the church? You know, I I'm already a member of the church. I trust in Jesus, I'm filled with his spirit, I'm a part of the church. And of course, there's some real truth in that. Right, if you've got a Bible, uh, flick to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the passage that was referenced in the kids' talk with uh, the puppets, not with Kelly and Anna, with the puppets. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to read from uh, verse 3 there, and then uh, skip down to verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 says, uh, Paul says, Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. By, this is the evidence of the, the Spirit's power being at work in someone's life. They're, they're willingly professing that Jesus is Lord, wanting to honour Jesus as Lord. Down to verse 12. Uh, Just as a body, uh, though one, has many parts, or literally many members, but all its many members form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptised by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one member, but of many. Now, if you know a little bit about the letter to the Corinthians, you know that Paul is speaking not to the church all around the world, but to a specific local church, isn't he? The, the church in Corinth. 
Uh, But he is here, I think, making some statements that are true of the universal church as well. He's saying everyone who willingly confesses that Jesus is Lord is baptised by uh, the the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, and is a member of what you might call Christ's universal church. His invisible church, the church that's made up of all true Christians in all times, in all places, in heaven and on earth. This is the invisible church. And everyone who trusts in Jesus is a member of that church. What we're talking about today, what the question we're asking today... Uh, is where do we get the idea that, that, that every member of Christ's universal church, his invisible church, where do we get the idea that those people should give a public expression to that membership by becoming a member of a specific local church, a visible church that meets in a specific place in the world? Where do we get that idea? So that's what we're zooming in on. And first of all, we get that idea from the first passage that Joel read in Matthew chapter 16, where I'm saying that Jesus lays the foundation of local church membership. So it would be great if you have that passage open in front of you. Matthew 16, if you look there in verse 13, I'm not going to read out the verses again. If you look in verse 13, you see that Jesus is asking his disciples and he's doing a survey of what people think of him. Who do people say that I am? And just notice that, right? Jesus is interested in what people are saying about him. And verse 14, uh, the the report comes that that people are saying a a whole lot of different things about Jesus. Uh, But the point of all the different answers is that none of them quite get it. All of them are saying the wrong thing about Jesus. And so Jesus knows uh, that people don't get who he is because of what they are saying with their lips. The, the, uh, the, condition of the spiritual condition of their hearts is revealed by what comes out of their mouths. And so Jesus turns to his disciples, verse 15, he says to them, Who do you say I am? That's an interesting little interchange between verse 14 and 15, isn't it? Like, in the end, Jesus isn't so much interested in your understanding of what other people say about who he is. He wants to know what you say about who he is. You say, I know that my my parents believe this about Jesus or my friend at university believes this about Jesus or my colleague believes this or the guy, I I watch some clips on YouTube or listen to this podcast. They say all these things about Jesus. Jesus says, but who do you say I am? In the end, all of us are are accountable for how we respond to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus' disciples here are no different. And in verse 16, Peter speaks up as the spokesperson for the disciples and he absolutely nails it, doesn't he? He gets it. Have a look there in verse 16. What does he say? He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Matthew's gospel has been building to this point, all this talk about God and his kingdom, and Peter says, Jesus, you are God's chosen king. You're the king that God promised would come to establish and rule over his eternal kingdom. You're the Messiah, he says, son of the living God. Matthew 1.23, you remember that verse? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is not just the the kind of king in God's kingdom, but he's God himself come to save his people, the son of the living God. So Peter gets it. This is a climactic moment in Matthew's gospel. And how does Jesus know that Peter gets it? It's because of what he says, right? 
He knows that the crowds don't get it because of what they say. And he knows that Peter does get it because what he says. He professes it with his lips. Now, that's not because there's anything particularly special about Peter, in fact. Look in verse 17. It's not because Peter's exceptionally clever or a kind of a, a more moral or, or better person than anyone else. No, Jesus makes it clear there. It's a, it's a sign that he's been blessed by God. Blessed are you, Simon. This has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but, but by Jesus' Father in heaven. It's not about you, Jesus is saying. This is a, a gift of God's grace that you see clearly who I am, that you can profess clearly who I am. And then in verse 17, uh, Jesus says to Peter, this is where it gets a little bit confusing, perhaps. Uh, he says, I tell, you, uh, uh, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And of course, this, this verse is a bit controversial. There's lots of debate about who, uh, who or what is this rock. And maybe it's made a, a little bit even more confusing because the name Peter actually means rock, right? There's a little play on words here. And so there's lots of debate about this in particular because the Catholic Church would say that the rock here is Peter himself. Know, maybe you've heard this before, right? Peter, uh, that Christ's church, uh, Christ is saying that he's going to build his church on Peter himself. Uh, and so really, Peter is like the first pope, the first pope, right? The, the first bishop of Rome. And the only, therefore, true church is the Catholic Church because they can trace a succession of bishops all the way back to Peter. But, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Oh, clearly, Peter's very significant. I'm not saying that. This is, a, uh, as I said, a watershed moment, one of the first times that, that someone has clearly understood who Jesus is. I'm not saying that Peter is not important, uh, but Jesus is not saying that his church is going to be built uh, solely on Peter the man. Uh, his church is going to be built out of people who, like Peter, rightly profess who he is. They, they, they get their confession in order. Uh, and in the end, that includes all the apostles. Right, we know that because of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Uh, if you're a quick flicker, you can flick to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. And it's very clear here that all the apostles who are with Peter at this point uh, come to share in his confession. Or maybe they share it in, in, in Matthew 16. It's just that Peter speaks up like that. Now, Peter's a bit impulsive like that. So, you know, he was maybe the first person to say it. Anyway, uh, verse 19. Ephesians 2 verse 19, Consequently, Paul says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And notice this bit, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So I think this is saying that the confession, the, the profession that, that Peter makes in Matthew 16 uh, is in the end the confession that all the apostles come to share in and it's that confession that forms the foundation of Christ's church. Well, not Peter himself, but the confession that he makes. That's the rock on which Christ will build his church. And then look in verse 19. I'm going, uh, sorry, this is... Matthew 16, verse 19, not Ephesians 2, verse 19. 
Jesus says, I'm going to give you, uh, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, another confusing phrase, but uh, maybe it helps. I've got my uh, house keys here in my pocket. And at this point, uh, my daughter Ada, she's uh, nearly six, six next Saturday. At this point, she does not have a key to our house. Why is that? It's because this key represents authority. There was a tradition in the past, wasn't it? Not so much these days, but when a child turned 21, they got the keys of the house. That was acknowledgement that they'd grown up, that they had sufficient maturity to be able to handle the power and authority that comes with having a key to the house. In the context of our house, uh, it means that Ada would have authority to affirm or deny entry to our house. Say, yes, you can come into our house, or no, you can't come into our house. And at this point, Ada doesn't really have the maturity to be able to exercise that authority. So we haven't given her keys yet. In the same way, the keys of the kingdom of heaven here uh, represent authority. Uh, The authority is a little bit different. It it is to do with recognising, it is to do with affirming and denying. But the emphasis is a little bit different. The authority that's given to uh, Peter and the church here uh, is to be able to affirm uh, either yes, uh, as far as we can tell, this person is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, or or deny to say no, as far as we can tell, this person has not entered the kingdom of heaven, they're not a citizen of the kingdom. It's really saying Jesus has the authority, right? he's just tested Peter's confession of faith, or his disciples' confession of faith. You know, Jesus has the authority to do that. He knows who he truly is. He tests his disciples. Uh, he tests the crowds. He goes, "You guys don't get it. Not citizens of the kingdom of heaven." Then he tests the disciples' confession of faith. He says to Peter, "You do get it. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven." Then he entrusts Peter with the same authority to test people's uh, confession of faith uh, and to affirm or deny whether they are indeed citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that idea of authority is driven home in verse 19, that binding and loosing idea, which is also a metaphor for authority. And you see here that there's this sort of slightly confusing thing about somehow Peter's decisions on earth have a connection with heaven. Uh, There's a bit of debate about what exactly is that connection and I think uh, it's confused by our translation being a little bit unhelpful. Right? Uh, I don't want to kind of you know get into too many details, but if you look in verse 19, the the verbs there are to do with heaven. Those verbs are in Greek in what's called the perfect tense, which is a past event that has present consequences. Past event with present consequences. Uh, And you'll see that in in the Connect card or in your Bible, this is no secret. Translators kind of debate about which way should we go with this translation. And so in the footnote, you'll see an alternate translation, and I think it's better here. Uh, And that is, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Past event with present uh, present consequences. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven past event with present consequences. And that's, you know, our version in the kind of standard translation gives the impression that, that, that the church is going about making decisions on earth and then heaven's just kind of going, oh, you know, God's just matching up his records to line them up with decisions that are made on earth, you see. 
Whereas the more accurate one is that God has already made decisions. Just like Peter, right? Jesus says, my Father in heaven has already revealed this to you. And so I affirm that he's revealed it, you see. Something has already happened with God's initiative from heaven. And Jesus affirms it in Peter's life. And that's the authority of the local church. That's why it's important, right? Because we as a church don't have the authority to kind of make someone a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, do we? That, that authority has not been entrusted to us. But we do have the authority to affirm that someone's a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In that sense, local churches are a little bit like an embassy. An embassy, these guys, oh, oh there's the queue. Postcard, uh, uh, passport. Right, so let's say you're travelling overseas, uh, you, you've got your passport, that, that verifies that, yes, you are indeed a citizen of the Kingdom of Australia. Right? You're a citizen of Australia. Uh, but then you lose your passport. What do you do? You go to the embassy. You go to the embassy, they put you through various tests. They ask you various questions. Uh, and in the end, they verify that, yes, you are indeed uh, a citizen of Australia. Uh, of course, they don't make you a citizen of Australia. They just affirm that you already were a citizen of Australia. That's what the local church is like. The local church is like an outpost, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. And Christ in, in, has entrusted the local church with the authority to test people's profession of faith and to affirm or deny that, yes, as far as we can tell, this person is or isn't a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus lays the foundation of local church membership. Uh, I think the idea, thinking about 1 Corinthians 12, uh, is that when someone becomes a member, what are we saying as a church? We're saying that we accept this person as a member of our local visible church because all the evidence suggests that they're already a member of Christ's universal church. Does that make sense? That's, that's all we're saying. God has already done something in this person's life and we're affirming that and welcoming them as a, as a member of our church. So Jesus lays this foundation in Matthew 16 and if you're not convinced, I think Matthew 18 is the clincher. Jesus only uses the word church two times. Matthew 16, Matthew 18. So, you know, maybe it's worth listening to, to what he says about the church. Uh, and in Matthew 18, he's building on the foundation that he's laid in Matthew 16. Uh, he's drawing out a particular practical implication of local church membership. Uh, you, you might have, be, have some familiarity with this passage. Uh, it's clearly about how should we deal with sin in, in the local church. Uh, so look there in verse 15. Uh, that, that's there, you know, your brother or sister sins against you. And your first port of call is not to go and kind of chat to someone else about it or, or gossip or whatever it is, but your first port of call is to go to your brother or sister about it. To say, look, you, you sinned against me in this way, the aim being that, uh, that they uh, repent of the sin, they say sorry to God, they say sorry to you, there's restoration, they commit to living differently. End of story. Wonderful. Oh, but then there's verse 16. Because sometimes you might go, Jesus says, and they don't repent... And Jesus says, in that case, you take two or three others with you 
And he quotes that verse from Deuteronomy chapter 19. Uh, the point of that verse being that if you're going to kind of continue to accuse someone of doing wrong, you better have your evidence lined up. You, you better <laughs> have your case in order. So be flippant about making accusations. So you take two or three others with you. And Jesus says, verse 17, if they still don't see the error of their ways, they still don't repent, uh, then you should tell it to the church. The church. Now clearly, that is the local church, isn't it? You're not reading that and thinking, now, uh, Jesus is actually saying, post this on Facebook to the universal, invisible church all around the world and see what they think. No, he's saying, tell it to a particular, local, visible gathering of believers. Tell it to the church. And if the person refuses to listen to the church, right? once again, that must be a particular local church. And Jesus says, if the local church agrees that this person's persistently living in unrepentant sin, then the local church has the authority to treat that person, that this is confronting, isn't it? to treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector. What's that? To treat that person uh, as if they're not a Christian because that's how they're living. This is the authority that Jesus entrusts to the local church. And then verse 18, we've got the same metaphor from Matthew 16, binding and loosing. This is the local church's authority to test someone's profession of faith and affirm or deny that they are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If someone who professes to be a Christian persistently lives in unrepentant sin, then the church has authority to say, at some point, this is the pointy end, right? At some point to say, as far as we can tell, this person is not a Christian. They're not living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, so for their good, for the good of God's people, for the glory of God's name, we must declare that this person is not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and that's how we're going to treat them. Using the language of visible and invisible, You might say that this is the church saying we no longer accept this person as a member of our local visible church because all the evidence suggests that they're not a member of Christ's universal invisible church. We're making that clear. And now I understand, like I'm sure some of you are just kind of like, I feel very uncomfortable about that. And I understand that. I understand why you'd feel uncomfortable because, well, the the church and any organisation, but the church has a a long history of leaders in power being abusive with their authority. Don't they? And that's not just in kind of wacky, fringy cults where leaders are particularly kind of, you know, crazy or whatever. It's in in mainstream churches where really faithful, Jesus-loving Christians have been shunned in various ways or or perhaps have even been kicked out of a church for really no clear biblical reason apart from the fact that the leader was on a power trip. So I understand that that this makes people feel uncomfortable. Any talk uh, of the local church being entrusted with authority to exercise any sort of uh, authoritative discipline over its members. I get that. 
And so you might be tempted to go, that, that, that abuse, that is why we should stop using this authority. Or forget about this principle altogether. But I, I'm not convinced that you want that either. Because in my experience, the same people who feel really uncomfortable about that and say we should stop using it are the very same people who would say in the face of the Royal Commission into child and sexual abuse, why did the church not say something? Why did the church not publicly declare that this priest is not living in a way, they're living in persistent, unrepentant sin, and for their spiritual good, the good of Christ's people, the glory of Christ's name, we need to declare that they are not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We don't want a bar of that. I think that's the pointy end, right? If we, if we say no to this authority altogether, then we risk ending up in a place where we're overly permissive with sin, where we're seen to be sweeping sin under the carpet and not dealing with it as Christ would have us deal with it in Matthew 18. So the answer is not to stop using it, but to use this authority very carefully. And in the Presbyterian Church, uh, what that means is, uh, we can talk later on about what biblical grounds there might be for this, but what that means for the most part in the Presbyterian Church is that that authority is, is primarily delegated to the elders and initiated by them. But right in the end, if the church discipline is going to work, the whole church needs to buy in. But in the Presbyterian Church, we say, this, the members of this church have elected these men as what, who they consider to be wise and godly men, and we trust them to exercise this authority carefully and to lead us in that process carefully. Anyway, there it is. Matthew 16, Jesus lays the foundation of local church membership. And in Matthew 18, he builds on that foundation with, with this particular practical implication in, when it comes to church discipline. And in the rest of the New Testament, the apostles uh, really implement the principles of Matthew 16 and 18, I think. They implement, uh, implement the principles of local church membership at least in three ways. Some of these will be quite quick, so don't uh, panic if... Uh, the first is that they understand that being a member of a local church is the normal result of Christian mission. So at the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Right? Make disciples uh, by going, baptizing and teaching. And if you read the book of Acts... When the disciples actually do that, uh, the disciples that they make are always baptised and taught in the context of a particular local church. You see, there's not just random disciples floating around as members of Christ's universal, invisible church. They're always plugged in to a particular local church where they're taught to obey everything Jesus commanded. Now you can read it in Acts 13 to 19 in particular. So the normal result of Christian mission is being a member of a local church. Uh, the normal context for church discipline is local church membership. Uh, we've looked at that in Matthew, uh, in Matthew 18. I just wanted to point out an, a particular example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got 1 Corinthians, you can uh, flick over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5 uh, from verse 1. Uh, Paul says to the church in Corinth, uh, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. 
a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now we, we could kind of unpack all the details of this, but the point is that this is a Matthew 18 situation, isn't it? How do we deal with sin in the local church? How do we deal with it? Paul's not happy with how the Corinthians are dealing with it. Look at verse 2. And you are proud, Paul says. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? You see, Paul, applying the principles of Matthew 18. Don't be proud. Mourn this guy's sin and put him out of your church, Paul says. Look in verse 3. For my part, Paul says, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Paul says, I've already exercised my authority as an apostle. I have passed judgment on this man. You should put him out of your church. And now Paul says, verse 4, you need to exercise your authority, the authority Christ has entrusted to you as a local church. Verse 4, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, uh, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Once again, I hope you can just hear the echoes of Matthew chapter 18. If the church assembles and agrees that this man is living in unrepentant sin, hand him over to Satan. could easily have written, treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. Same idea. And once again, some of you think, well, that's just incredibly harsh. But notice the purpose at the end of verse 5. The purpose is not to to finally condemn the man, but but to get him to wake up. It's for the destruction of his fleshly desires that he would return to Christ and his people and be saved. Surely a case could be argued that it's much more harsh to leave someone who's professing to be a Christian in unrepentant sin, isn't that much less loving? To allow them to think that they're on the right path, that there's no problem, that they're clearly a believer. That's much more harsh. And in 2 Corinthians 2, we see that this process of church discipline works. We're not going to unpack that, but you can look it up. This, this, uh, this man repents of his sin, and at the appropriate time, Paul says, welcome him back, forgive him, let him be restored to the fellowship. Well, that's what we'd hope for any situation that plays out like this. So, so the local, uh, local church membership uh, is the uh, normal context, really the only context uh, where church discipline works and it's the normal setting for Christian living in general. Uh, just to note, you know, if you read the New Testament, it's full of commands, isn't it? A lot of them are one another's. Christians, we're, we're commanded to love one another, to live in harmony with one another, to rejoice and mourn with one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, to pray for one another, to carry one another's borders, all these commands. And it's clear that we're, called, we're carrying out those commands in the context of a specific local church, right? not just with Christians in general around the world. So now I've persuaded you all, right? Clearly I've persuaded you all. Yes, I want to become a member. That's the biblical kind of basis for it. Uh, what, does it actually, what does it actually look like to become a member of Darabin Presbyterian Church? And the answer to that is that becoming a member is a little bit like a marriage ceremony. 
Some of you have seen these membership ceremonies before. Uh, but what happens in a marriage ceremony? Two people who are committed to one another in their hearts. Oh, they, we know that they're committed, but they give public expression to that commitment with their lips by making promises to one another before God and others. Right, that's the basic framework of a marriage ceremony. It's about the public promises being made. And in the process of doing that, uh, they form a marriage covenant where they bind themselves to one another, to, to sticking by one another through thick and thin, having one another's back for the rest of their lives. Right, that's the, the, the marriage ceremony. And church membership is a little bit like that. Not exactly the same. You know, I'm not saying if you become a member, you're, you're here for life. But uh, it's a little bit like that, isn't it? In that someone who, who is committed to Christ in their heart already gives public expression to that commitment by making uh, promises with their lips before God and others. Well, that's all church membership is. And in the process of doing that, uh, they form with their local church uh, something that's a bit like a membership covenant. They bind themselves to one another by these promises and that their local church says, we're committed to you. They say, I'm committed to you. Uh, we say, I, I say, we've got your back. They say, we've got each other's back in the Christian life. We're in this together, for better, for worse. Whatever the journey of the Christian life throws our way. That's church membership. In that sense, uh, it reminds me of uh, Ruth chapter 3 a few weeks ago when I was talking about how uh, many of us experience life to be a long journey to a place of rest. And that's the reality of the Christian life, isn't it? Uh, Christians are t uh, in F uh, Philippians 3 verse 20, we're called citizens of heaven. This world is not our home. We're, we're on a long journey, pilgrims through this world, going to our ultimate home in heaven. Uh, and that's a journey that every Christian on the planet is on. We're all at some point on that journey. But the question is, who are your companions on the journey? On the long hike to heaven, who are your hiking companions? Who are the people who've got your back? Whose back do you have? Who's taken responsibility for you? Who are you taking responsibility for on the journey? I have to up that these are my hiking companions uh, from a few years back. Uh, so you might recognise Matt and Kate. They're now uh, some of our mission partners. Uh, and there's Gabby, obviously, with a stylish beanie. And uh, our friend Jim and, and me. And Sally's behind the camera taking this shot. We're about to go on a walk across the Bogong High Plains. Uh, and the reality is that there were probably 30 different hikers on the same trail as us at the same time. At different points. But these were the ones that had my back. These were the ones when I was hungry would, would pass a snack, when I was thirsty would pass a drink bottle. They're the ones that if I was going off course, they'd have the map out and say, you, you've got to get back on track here. They're the ones that would offer to carry my pack if I was getting tired. These were my hiking companions, despite the fact that there were all sorts of hikers on the, on the track. And that's the Christian life. We can take that, uh, the picture of my hiking companions down. Right, but that's church membership. It's saying, yes, I'm a part of Christ's universal church uh, with every Christian around the world, uh, but who are we actually hiking with? We're hiking with our local church. Right, in, in the end, it's your local church who you've bound yourself to with, with these promises. It's your local church, when you're tired or hungry, uh, who will get alongside you, who will encourage you, who will spur you on, who will cook you a meal. 
Right here to your local church, if you're sick or injured, that will get alongside you and care for you and pray for you. Tend to your needs. It's your local church, when you slip or fall on the journey, who will pick you up. It's your local church. Uh, if you lose your way, who will seek you out? They'll care enough to seek you. I mean, some of us, uh, I mean, I, I love some of us uh, love listening to podcasts of great preachers around the world. But let me tell you, Tim Keller's not knocking on your door if you start backsliding in the Christian life. But the people in your local church might do that. John MacArthur's not calling you out on sin. Right, but the people in your local church might do that. People on the other side of the world aren't bringing you a meal after you've had surgery, but, but we hopefully will, you see. So the question is, who are your hiking companions? That's what church membership is. And we're saying, why don't you make DPC your hiking companions? Not necessarily till death do us part, although you know, perhaps I'll be here to the bitter end, but, but at least for this next part of the journey. You know, let's commit to doing the Christian life together. Let me pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for this, your word. Uh, we do pray in light of uh, where we started today, that you would keep uniting our church around those matters of first importance, uh, the truth of who our Lord Jesus is and what he has done for us, the great truths of the gospel. And we pray, Father, for increased clarity around these matters of secondary importance that, that faithful uh, brothers and sisters can indeed disagree on. But we do pray for clarity that we might increase in our understanding of one another and be able to treat one another uh, with respect and love uh, and that we'd maintain the unity of the Spirit despite any differences that it might exist. Uh, we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.